That second red star on the Chicago flag? Why, that is for the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893, which showcased the people and cultures from 46 countries on 690 acres of land south of downtown Chicago. 27 million people visited the World's Fair at a time when the country's population was not quite 63 million, proving to all that Chicago had risen from the ashes from the Great Fire of 1871. Today I'm talking with Michael Finney, who not only authored 1893, Chicago's Columbian Exposition, Arts and Culture from the Doorstep of the 20th Century, but also directed the documentary 1893, Chicago's Columbia Exposition. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Michael Finney, welcome. Hey there, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for being on. Tell me a little bit about your connection to Chicago. Uh, Northwest Indiana is where I'm originally from, but I've okay. got family throughout uh, the Chicagoland area, including in the city. Fantastic. So, uh, have have lived around Chicago most of my life, have, have traveled a bit and, and lived in some other areas, but it would be very difficult for me to say that Chicago isn't, um, you know, like a, a first home. Well, listen, your your uh, Chicago cred, of course, uh, even if you uh, grew up in Hobart, it extends because you wrote this amazing book. It is called 1893 Chicago's Columbian Expo World's Fair. Uh, and you also did a documentary to go along with it, which I just watched again last night. So uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, the book, by the way, for those of you listening, is available on Amazon in physical form. And if you have uh, Kindle Unlimited, you can read it for free. If you don't have Kindle Unlimited, I'll include a link in the show's notes so you can check it out. So how did this uh, book come about? Uh, you know, originally um, I acquired a book called the, the Dream City, right, which is a collection of official photographs by Charles Arnold. And I decided to start kind of sharing them out on social media because I thought the pictures were cool and just writing little blurbs about that and converting it, you know, into you know, social media content. To me, it was just something that I could share with people. Uh, I love the photos in the book. It was something that, you know, as people know, like most of these things are no longer around. And to be able to look at these images, um, you know, very intimately, like smashing your face into the paper <laughs> is not something that uh, I would say most people get to do. And being able to offer at least a portion of that experience to everybody smashing their face into their phones uh, sounded like a good idea to me. So that's what I started doing. Now, were you a history guy growing up or is this something you kind of adapted to uh, in preparation for the book? Um, well, you know, I think history is interesting. I, I do enjoy uh, reading about history and studying it a little bit. I think that there's a lot to learn there. I wouldn't say I am a formal historian in any sense. I don't have any degrees in it for sure. But uh, in terms of social science, yeah, I've, I've always, I've always liked that type of stuff. I consider history to be, um, you know, inside of that vein, there's always cultural and social aspects and try to drive home some of the messages that I found within the context of the, the media. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way. I, I refer to myself as a history nerd, 
uh, or a history enthusiast. Uh, as I don't have a degree in history, I've always been just a, a big fan. And so, you know, the nice thing is with uh, the interwebs and stuff like newspapers.com, the Library of Congress, you now have access to all this information and old pictures and everything that you uh, you didn't have before. So with a little bit of effort, uh, you can really kind of take a, a even a slight interest in history and turn it into a full-blown passion or a book and documentary, right. which uh, right. obviously you did. So you uh, your book is chock full of pictures that I've seen elsewhere, uh, but you go into the history of each in a way I don't see in other collections, uh, which I, I think is is fantastic. You know, one of the things that you go into detail about is uh, each of the different buildings that different states put forth for the World's Fair, including Hawaii, which wasn't even a state yet. I, I guess I didn't put this together or I realized that Hawaii was part of the World's Fair. Uh, although it wasn't a state yet, they still sent a replica of the Kilauea volcano. I probably butchered that horribly. Uh, billed as the greatest volcano on Earth, which I thought was super cool. Yeah, um, so yeah. lots of states had a presence at, at the event. Um, I think that it is very easy to be attracted to the large structures, and obviously, you know, I am too, but there were just all these other smaller buildings that were also really interesting and they had a story attached to them about the people who were involved with designing and creating and uh, producing the experience on the grounds as well. And that just, you know, I liked it. So I wanted to include it. I, I think you did an amazing job on that. I, I guess there are times that as many times as I've looked at pictures from the event, every so often I'll see a picture that shows just how vast the entire event was. And I think, oh my gosh, that's just so crazy. Uh, but, you know, again, on a much smaller scale, there was a uh, small contingent of Native American tribes at the World's Fair, which surprised me, of course, based on my knowledge of the history of Native American tribes in Chicago. Of course, in your book, you point out that they were from the Penobscot Nation of Maine. So they yeah. had to go all the way to the far side of the Northeast to find a, a tribe willing to come to Chicago after all the upheaval we've had here with yeah. Native Americans. Um, so the, the Penobscot had a presence at the fair, and I was doing some traveling, uh, looking around Maine. I was visiting the northern terminus of the Appalachian Trail, which is within Baxter State Park, the last stretch of that of the AT goes up a mountain within Baxter State Park. And then I was headed over to Acadia National Park in Maine. And when you're in Bar Harbor, the Penobscot, they have a museum there. So I was in the middle of finishing the book and was able to take some photos and include that stuff. And it just, you know, total serendipity. I was really lucky at the time to cross paths with some, some content, some of the paper material that is in there, tickets and, and other things um, that show up in both the documentary and the book were from a private collection that somebody mm. uh, showed me and allowed me to photograph. And I was very, very lucky. It was just, uh, again, <laughs> uh, total coincidence uh, that, that that happened. And I don't necessarily believe in, in uh, randomness that way. You know, obviously I asked this person who was an antiques dealer, do you have anything 
going with the Colombian exposition. And he just had this incredible collection, which is probably the, the most thorough and highest quality collection of those paper goods. And he was willing to uh, let me take photos. And that was incredible. And, you know, the Penobscot Museum had some really great stuff in it. And I wanted to be able to, to include some of that into the, into the story, because I think that, you know, the, the Native American story in the U.S. and in America at that point in time is compelling. Oh, absolutely. I think that, uh, yeah, I think you nailed it on the head. It is, uh, I often refer to it as fortuitous timing, you know, had you, you know, finalize the book and then come across that stuff a couple of weeks later, you wouldn't have stopped kicking yourself. You would have immediately started planning on doing a new, you know, an updated version or a new edition of the book. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's super cool that you found it uh, when you did. I learned about uh, through your book, uh, the Algerian theater with extreme, hold on. How did you word it? I wrote it down. Algerian theater with extreme displays of body modifications and even president Cleveland visited I don't believe you went into the uh, details on the extreme displays of body modifications, but the mind wanders uh, wondering what that could have all been about. We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American, hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, fashion is fashion and, and culture is culture. And then sometimes there's overlap and tattoos and piercings, I think at that point in the 1890s, you know, was seen as something fantastic. Hmm. You know, it was certainly not the typical cultural expression within the, within the United States at that point in time. You know, it's funny thinking of that because I I don't think people understand how far back tattoos go, even in the United States. And so, you know, kind of cool that it was there almost 130 years ago, kind of on display. You talk about the fisheries building with 3000 square feet of viewable glass. And you also mentioned public aquariums. Uh, Public aquariums didn't really exist at the time. And I thought, well, now here I have to get on the rabbit hole of research into public aquariums. I found out the first aquarium in the world, 1853 London. That was kind of an outside uh, thing. First aquarium in in Chicago, the Shedd Aquarium, which I think was the John G. Shedd Aquarium, uh, didn't open until 1930. Kind of weird that it took 37 years uh, to get that in place, because I think the the, uh, aquarium at the 1893 World's Fair was, was actually pretty popular. So, yeah. I don't know if they were all tired at the end of the World's Fair and they were like, you know what, somebody else, the next generation can do it, right? Because 37 years later, you know. So many of those structures were impermanent, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, We still have a a couple of buildings in Chicago and there are actually a few other structures uh, outside of the city as well. So, you know, everybody's familiar with the Art Institute. I would say, you know, most people are also aware 
that the Museum of Science and Industry uh, you know, started as the Art Palace and was reconstructed later uh, in the 20s after the collection that was there moved north over to the Field Museum. But again, uh, the fisheries building, you know, not a permanent structure. So it wasn't something that would have been long-term viable. Now, the Shedd Aquarium, having been built, uh, completed in 1930, you know, was really kind of like right on the cusp of what would have been the second World's Fair in Chicago, right? Which was in, in 1933. So like that maybe picks up the mantle, you know, picks sure. up the torch from the Columbian Exposition. And then we have this other thing that has a legacy that reaches back uh, to the 19th century. Add a couple of new buildings, make it all shiny. I mean, honestly, the Museum of Science and Industry, um, you know, hard to believe that that building sat as long as it did. Uh, you know, finally started working on it in the 20s, opened in 1933, I think, you know, 40 years after the World's Fair. The aquarium, though, you know, I understand that the buildings weren't meant to be permanent, but the idea of people looking at anemones and some of the other things it seems like somebody would go hey people are really into this we should find a way to build another building and fill it with water and and cool animals i don't know again maybe they were all just super worn out uh so you mentioned the museum of science industry um you talk in your book about the statue of the republic uh which many may know as the golden lady which still exists kind of down near uh jackson park uh, well yeah there is a replica yeah the um daniel Daniel Chester French, pretty sure that's his name, uh, who created that. And also responsible for the, the Lincoln statue at the memorial in D.C. He was asked to create uh, a replica of the statue, which had burnt down in like 1896, I believe. So he creates a, a scaled model, and that is still standing. And, uh, you know, beautiful structure. I, I think it's really great that we still have these things around the city, particularly on the site of the grounds. It makes, yeah. it makes sense. It's yeah. very close to what was the Grand Basin at that point in time. And actually, um, you know, I don't know when this is going to run, but I am very likely headed up there to get a photograph um, in, in the coming days. So I, I hope I you'll share that with me once you get it. <laughs> well, it'll be used for oh. um, the second edition of oh, the book, which very is very cool. Be well, look at that. I was just talking about an updated uh, edition of the book. How timely is this? Well, as it turns out, uh, you know, I've learned some new things and have developed some other things that I want to include in there. And I just, I just want it to be a little more more vibrant a little more modern looking too hmm, so the okay. picture on the cover you know is is the antique photo right but right. for me i think that the the real lasting legacy of this event is its influence on the 20th century and the the 20th century uh, you know is it still are we still there have we finally left it um you know are we are we leaving it but still standing in its shadow all questions people can ask. But for me, what I want to tie into, and I think, um, you know, you see that in, in the book and in the documentary is the modern legacy. And that includes, you know, the structures that are still there, artwork that's still there. And I do want this to feel like something that people can 
you know, get their hands on or is still relevant today. And to me, color photography of an existing sculpture does that better than a historic photo, even though I I love that photo. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's not the worst thing in the world to go back and go, gosh, I've learned so much more over the past couple of years. And now I want to go back and kind of freshen things up a little bit. I think that happens quite often. So in researching this product, what was the most surprising thing you learned? Hmm. I know, Um, right? You learned a ton, but was there something where you were like, wait, what? I think the thing that I maybe most personally like just, resonates for me is Tesla's involvement with Westinghouse to uh, win the contract to light the fair. I, I just think that that is very compelling for me. And then also, you know, given the, the Tesla brand still having, uh, you know, a moment right now, obviously it indicates that the original Tesla, you know, Nikola was onto something, you know, and he, he perhaps deserves to have more cultural purchase than we have decided to give him credit for, particularly, you know, again, uh, when he is in the shadow of, of giants, you know, like Edison. So Design of the World's Fair uh, is credited to John Root, Daniel Burnham, Frederick Law Olmsted, and Charles B. Atwood, if they're around in present day. How do you think that they would perceive our ongoing interest in something that happened almost 130 years ago? I think that they would think that they had a pretty strong level of success. Um, Burnham, particularly, it's hard to disconnect the city of Chicago from Burnham. Yeah, you know? yeah. Frederick Law Olmsted, he has a entire society devoted to his works and studying his output there's there's lots of their works still in existence so yeah i would say that at least in terms of those two you know locally and nationally yeah i would i would say that they're successful sure pretty Um, cool to be remembered after all this time for an event that happened so long ago you know and to your point i mean obviously burnham and the 1909 plan and, and all the other stuff all the other accomplishments that those guys had but right you know, this is kind of the big one. I've got one last question for you. If you could travel back in time to experience one aspect of the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, actually, I think I know what it is. Uh, what would it be? <laughs> um, tell you what, while you're thinking about it, I will tell you, uh, based on our conversation, what I think it would be. Uh, I think you'd want to be there for the initial lighting of the, what, 100,000 lights that uh, lit up the White City? That night, yeah, that certainly is a moment. And while I was thinking about it, like that was the first one that popped up to me. Oh, and then immediately, I was like, "But what? You know, if I'm time traveling, right? Sure. I'm going back into that period of time. Is electric light a wow factor for me? Hmm. You know, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it is. If I'm contextualizing it that way, I'm not sure that it is. Now, if there's one. If I'm from that era, if there's one moment that I want to see, absolutely, that's the moment that I want to see. Gosh, if there was one thing that I could really do, I guess it would be to ride a boat through the peristyle into the Grand Basin. That would be, I think, 
really for me the thing that I would want to do. And I'm fairly indifferent about whether that was daytime or night. Uh, you know what? Great answer. I probably would not say um, go on that uh, moving transport thing that they set up, which by the yeah. way, was the first in the United States. Uh, but I know it broke down a lot. And at one point they just gave up on it. So that would not be on my list, but right. uh, super cool. I don't blame you. Well, I got to tell you, I like uh, knowing a guy who knows so much about the 1893 World's Fair. Michael Finney is the author of the 1893 Chicago's Columbian Expo World's Fair book available on Amazon. Uh, there's also a great documentary available there as well, which uh, if you're listening, you should check out because it is really cool. It's amazing that pictures looked as good as they did back then because, man, these pictures are crystal well, clear. So. Uh, you know, I've doctored some of those photos up oh, in terms of production. So. Cleaned them up a little bit. All right. Yeah, well, that, actually, that, that makes a lot of sense then. That's so. an interesting point that you make because I was meeting with someone recently and they got to actually handle the book and look at it. And they're like, I've seen these photos before and these look better than those. And I'm like, well, you know, they're photoshopped a little bit, you know, to right. clean them up and to render them um, in a in a higher contrast and uh, you know, to make them a little sharper in some cases. Sure. A little more print, uh, print friendly. Yeah. So I would say like, um, you know, I'm working on the second edition of the book. You'll be able to find that very early uh, in, in 2022. And we are progressing with the extended reality asset build out. So the, the hope is that, very soon into the new year, you know, using augmented reality technology, I'll be able to walk in the Grand Basin, actually. That is fantastic. Well, let us know as things develop. And again, Michael Finney, this has been a joy. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you. for listening to today's episode about the book 1893 Chicago's Columbian Exposition Arts and Culture from the Doorstep of the 20th Century. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. Special thanks to my guest today, author and director Michael Finney. As always, if you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I have links to Michael Finney's works discussed today, as well as other related books and items, if you or somebody you know is a history nerd like me who would like to learn more. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Friendster pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on these social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in, and stay safe. <laughs>